the agency pitch model broken? I'm joined by Craig Rodney, who built and eventually sold South Africa's most successful social media marketing agency, Cerebra. Over the space of 15 years, Craig and his team worked with many global brands, including Google, Vodacom, Absa, Coca-Cola, and many others. He is also the founder of The Agency Coach. We discussed the responsibility of brands in the creation and delivery of great creative work. If I could put it in a nutshell, they have to get far more control over their client relationship. Because if you're if you're if you don't have a, a, an equal power relationship with a client, you're never going to be allowed to make enough money to not always have to be busy. As a seasoned agency owner who now coaches agencies, Craig shares his thoughts and findings on what hinders growth in both small and medium-sized agencies. And and most creative agencies will attest to this. You know, the client hires people who they believe will do amazing work and then they put, then all they do is they restrict it. Now, certain clients, it's not restricting, it's tightening. Right, so they tighten the idea and they make it better and better. Certain clients think they're doing that, but they're actually killing and constraining the idea, right? And they're vastly different. So that's the first thing. The second thing is if you want great work, pay for it. Thank you for listening to The Lead Creative. Please share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Lead Creative Podcast, where we talk to creative industry leaders, influencers, and brands. We discuss the strategies that influence brand thinking and shape industries. Thought leaders and heads of agencies let us in on some of their thinking and insights. I'm your host, Mongi Simtati. Enjoy the show and please share and subscribe. Craig, thanks so much for making the time to chat with us on The Lead Creative. It's been a while. How have you been? I've been good, thanks. Um, yeah, it's been an interesting kind of three, four years for everyone, I guess. But um, I think we're through, I think, well, personally, I think I'm through through most of the the scary, scary parts and, um, and things are on the up, which is great. So I've got nothing to complain about. Yeah. And I think just looking back at the past, um, at the past, I guess, three to four years, I mean, you... The agency got acquired. You've you haven't had uh, the stresses or at least joys of agency life in a while. How has that shift been for you? So I left Cerebra at the end of 2016. Okay, so to put it in perspective, it's been longer that I've been out of Cerebra than I was in Cerebra. Um, it shows you how time marches on quickly, right? So it's been it's been a while since I left. You, you, you're right. Like I, I, I haven't missed the agency stresses. I think uh, after I left, there was there was a lot of kind of recovery that I had to do. You know, like emotional, physical health type of stuff. And I think you only realize on the outside how much, like how much stress and strain and anxiety you, you carry running running an agency. It's it's not it's not easy. It can be easier if, you know, I mean, if you're smarter and you work smarter, it can be easier. But the way I did it wasn't particularly the smartest. And, and a lot of it was kind of supported emotionally. And, and you know, whenever you've got emotions involved, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause issues. So, so significantly happier on the outside. If I, if I ever did it again, I would, I would do it quite a, quite a bit differently. But, um, but you don't avoid stress. It's a myth. I, you know, I've suffered with anxiety for, for a number of years 
And when my anxiety went through the roof when I left. Like I had no emails, I had like no phone calls, no WhatsApps. I didn't have to go to work. I had some cash in the bank. You know, I'm like I was living everyone's dream and my anxiety spiked. Like it went through the roof. And it's which is weird because your brain starts trying to find something to worry about. And yeah, so it was it was weird. It was uh, I had to adjust. I had to adjust to it. At least, at least when you're at the office, you can blame clients and employees for anxiety. When when they're gone, you can only blame yourself. This is true. Looking back at the time when you started the agency, when you started your agency, and the time when you got acquired by WPP, what do you think you would have done differently just looking back now and thinking about the journey? I would have done it faster. You know, if I had to start again, knowing what I know now, I, I, reckon, I reckon I would be able to achieve a similar level of success, but a lot quicker. So I wouldn't have fumbled around as long. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have paused on key decisions because of self-doubt. You know, I would have, I would have executed and I would have executed quicker and, and, and chased it. But I think the destination Mike and I got to, I think, was a successful destination. And, and I'll, I'll forever be proud of, proud of the business that we built and proud of the, the deal that we had. Um, I think I would have done it quicker and I wouldn't have been as, as much of myself personally wouldn't have been tied up in the business. As I said, I was, it was like this emotional thing, you know, it's your, you, you start to think that it is who you are and it's your reputation and it's your ego. And it's all these things that, that are, are out there. And, and you, you know, you, you, when, when you lose a client or when a key person resigns, you're not just losing revenue and you're not just losing a resource. Like you're taking a kick in the teeth. Oh, what's wrong with me? What have I done wrong? What's wrong with the business? Why are they like that? It's like this emotional roller coaster, right? Whereas, so I think I would, I would be less emotional and I'd, and I would execute significantly quicker. Yeah. Yeah. Now that you have come out of agency life, as you've said, and of course you are helping agency owners from small to large agencies with you know coaching services as well as just being involved and, and helping them grow. What have you seen to be some of the hindrances to growth? I mean, you just mentioned now that of course you'd have done it quicker, you'd have done it faster with self-doubt. And of course, um, hindsight is twenty twenty, as they say. Um, but what do you see as the biggest hindrance to growth or one of them at least? So... A, a very practical one. So we have to separate um, behavioral from practical. Like, so, so a, a practical kind of a market-related hindrance is access to skills. There, there's a dire lack of skills, specifically in South Africa. There's a dire lack of available skills or high-quality skills. And in order for an agency to grow, if they're going to sell more time, they need to buy more time. So they have to be able to shore up and secure supply of skills that they're then, then going to go on and sell. And I think that's difficult. I think a lot of people are struggling to find good, really good skills. And, um, and I think due to the, due to market and the supply and demand, I think people with average skills, with average levels of average qualifications, average levels of experience are asking premium rates because there's a vacuum above them. And so, you know, you know, someone with someone showing a modicum of skill and and drive and, and a little bit of experience is asking way above their salary because 
everyone wants them because they, they, it, there's a there's a scarcity of skills and that drives your that drives your your kind of your supply costs up and puts pressure on on agency margins so i think from a market you know market economic factor i think that's one of the biggest things that that's hindering hindering revenue growth from a, a very specific internal issue that I come across most often with the agencies that I work with is grow the growth of the agency is directly tied to the capacity of the owner. And so they grow the business to the point that they are busy, that they're working eight, 10 hours a day and they can't take on more work. They can't get busier. They can't work more nights. They can't work more weekends. And so they can't take on more clients and they kind of get stuck. And then they're going, I'm working all this time. I'm putting in all this effort. I'm making a little bit of money, like not much, but I can't work less because there's not enough money for me to work less. And I can't work more because there's not enough hours. So they're trapped. They have, they have income scarcity, like money scarcity, and they have time scarcity. And so that both of them are scarce and they're just, and that's, that for me is the most common trap. And 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 it's 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 a bit of a nightmare, right? Like you know, I think most of my coaching that I do now, at least upfront and predominant pr primarily, is around working people out of that trap, disassociating or disconnecting an owner's work capacity from the growth of the agent. The growth, agency should be able to grow well beyond your personal capacity to work, um, but it requires it requires you know learning new things and figuring out how to delegate and skills and hiring people that can that can take work off your plate. And so those two kind of play into each other a lot. But between those two, I think I think that's the majority of it at the moment, uh, that, that, that kind of main main issue. And, and, and in most instances, how do you then find ways to drive that separation or at least enable the agency owner to, 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 to separate themselves and, and be able to grow given those those that dichotomy of these, you know, two things that 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 hinder that growth. So, so the how tends to be quite complicated. Um, the 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 what is fairly simple, right? What the owner has to do is charge significantly more. So, if I could put it in a nutshell, they have to get far more control over their client relationship because if you're if you're if you don't have a, a, an equal power relationship with a client, you're never going to be allowed to make enough money to not always have to be busy. Because money solves these problems, right? Like if you're too busy, hire someone to take over that work. Oh, we can't afford to hire someone, so I have to keep doing it. Oh, then you're trapped, right? So the 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 the, the starting point and it's which is the hardest thing in the world is to stand up and go, these are our rates. This is what we charge. If you want us to do it, we'll do it. Like if you're not willing to pay these rates, then you can go find someone else, right? And you actually need to position yourself around higher rates because if you can if you can charge more rates, if you can charge higher rates, then you could, you've got more money. That means you can hire better people who need you less. And so we start that kind of upward spiral. But the trigger for all upward spirals is directly linked to your ability to make meaningful money out of client work. 
And that means taking control of that relationship, standing by your quotes, not being beaten up, letting low paying work walk or, or pass you by, which is very difficult for a lot of people. They're in survival mode. So I often say, if you imagine, you know, equating your agency, you know, you position it on Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you kind of go, where are you as an agency? You realize like the, the base level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is, is safety, security, like, you know, basically everything that is linked to just survival. It's pure survival. You know, food, shelter, safety, security, that's it, right? And most agencies start there. Very few agencies start with a bankroll. Very few agencies start with funding where they get to just go straight into being moneyed. Most agencies start as, as bootstraps and they have to grow into this. When you're in that kind of startup phase, the decision-making is, is very much centered around survival mode. So you've got an abundance of time. You've started an agency. You've probably got one client. You've got tons of time. So you can solve most problems with your time. You can throw time at problems. You know, you are your own FD. You're the salesperson. You're the, you do everything. Your client service, like you do everything because you have no money, so you can't afford anyone else to do it. So you throw your time at the problem. But because you're in survival mode, you're willing to take on low paid work. You're willing to just win any client. You're willing to discount to get that deal through the door, et cetera. Because any decision that sees you surviving to the next day is the correct decision. And in survival mode, I support you. If you're in survival mode, that's how you do it. You do whatever it takes to make it to tomorrow and try and stay in business. Try keep going because you can't make a decision that sees your, sees you demise, your demise. The problem is, is that survival mode decision-making traps you in survival mode. So while it keeps you alive, it also traps you in that level. So you can't escape. So what happens is if you want to escape survival mode, you have to reverse the decision-making. Instead of hiring the cheapest person you can get for a role, you hire the most expensive. You hire the best, right? Instead of Instead of accepting a client going, these are our rates and blah, 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 and, and pushing rates down, you just go, no, these are our rates. If you're not interested, move along. And it's terrifying. Every single decision out of survival mode is terrifying. But if you aren't charging the correct rates, you're not making enough money to hire good people to delegate to. You're going to be stuck doing all of the work, working every night, every weekend, doing potentially substandard, stressful work for clients who aren't going to be appreciative anyway. And that's where you get trapped. So that decision-making structure, your approach to how you make decisions needs to change to escape survival mode. If you're enjoying The Lead Creative, please share this episode with your network and hit follow or subscribe. Enjoy the show. I attended one of your talks recently, um, which was titled The Agency, Agency to Exit Talk, in which you talk about the journey towards your exit uh, at Cerebra and being acquired by WPP, which we spoke about a little bit earlier. Um, you said something, you said a lot of interesting things in that talk, but one of the things that stood out for me was that you spoke about the fact that you realized that you had built a strong, a strong brand as Cerebra, but not a strong business. And you realized this when, um, at the point when you were you know getting to getting into the journey of acquisition can you unpack that sentiment and also just how we 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 as i think creative thinkers tend to to do that because we are able to build 
create really interesting brands on the outside, but not really great businesses on the inside. Um, how did you can you unpack what that means and and how you got to that realization? Sure. So so I think I think it all starts with the fact that everyone's out there trying to win. We're all trying to win. We're all trying to win new clients, win new projects, win new work, etc. And in order to do that, we need to look the part, which is our brand. We need to look like we're cool. We need to look like we can do the work. We need to look like we're the number one digital agency. You know, so so how you look, how you present yourself is critical. And that's your that's your brand, that's your positioning. Our, our brand back in back in the day, we were we were incredibly well known as the social media agency, and, and it served us unbelievably well. And we were lucky in that in that we were a social media business in the early days of Cerebra, but we capitalized on that with really hard work by doubling down, being constantly available for interviews and radio, TV. Like we, we just tried to own as much of the share of voice in social as possible. So we had this amazing brand. Like everyone knew who we were. Everyone wanted to work there. Clients were knocking on our door wanting to work with us. And as an independent privately owned business, that's fine. You know, we were doing well. It was, it was great. But structurally as a business, if you structurally as a business, we weren't in a great position. Financially, we were fine. We were making money. We had cash flow. Like we never really, it wasn't like a disaster behind the wheel. But part of the acquisition journey is an, an acquirer is essentially looking at two key elements. So I always say there's two buyers from one company. So within within like WPP or anyone who buys you, you've got to imagine you're being bought on two criteria. The first criteria is is on your like brand and your position and your 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 future, right? And it's we call it the desire. It's what is their measure of desire? And desire is like it's it's like a visual. It's like oh, they have to believe that you're the next big thing. They have to believe that you're like killing it, that you're positioned for growth. Because anyone who acquires you, they're not buying you for what you are now. They're buying you for what, you, what you're going to become. You know, you, not, if you go and put money onto Apple shares, you're not buying Apple shares for what they're worth today. The reason you're buying them is because you believe that that share will be worth more tomorrow than it is today. So you're buying future value. And anyone acquiring you is not buying your current value, they're buying your future value. So the visionary from the acquisition side is going to be looking at you going, do these people fit into our vision? Like, are they a high growth agency? Are they positioned well to catch this wave of spend, et cetera, et cetera? And that visionary, if you've got a, a great brand like we had, and you're well positioned, like they're licking their lips. They're like, oh, you guys are amazing. You're the best. Like, yes, we really want to buy you. We think you're the hottest thing in the world. And and again, like our first acquisition talks were with Aegis. And if we'd sold to them based purely on desire, we would have been made far more money. But the problem is, is that desire is only half of it. The other half is essentially a, a, li a link between risk and likelihood. So it's looking at the same problem positive or a negative. So they're going, okay, if we're buying your future and we're going to pay you for your future, I want to know how guaranteed the future is. So I want to know if you are actually going to deliver on what everyone believes you're going to achieve. Because I'm paying you for what you're going to do over the next however many years. So what assurances do I have that you're going to do that? So then they come and look at the business from a structural point of view. They come and look at your client contracts. 
and they come and look at your employee contracts and they look at your shareholders agreement and they look at your lease agreement and they they look at everything. And it's like they they pull back the blankets and they're looking at you and you are standing there bare naked. Like there is there is no protection um, from from critique because they want to find evidence of whether you will or will not achieve the future that you're promising, that you're pitching them as like, this is how good we're going to be. And, and so that's the, that's the risk likelihood side. And that's generally going to be represented or embodied by an auditor who has no sense of humor, who will sit across from you in a boardroom and ask you questions about client contracts and, you know, what are the renewal clauses? What are the rate escalation clauses? What is the notice period? What are the legal things around notice period? What is the, when is the pitch date, like, et cetera, et cetera. What are your retention rates? What are your success rate on pitches? What are your, what are your, what is the shape of your sales funnel? What is the, like, the list just goes on and on and on. But the, the lower the risk for them, in other words, the higher the likelihood of you actually doing what you say you're going to do, the more they'll pay you. So risk of around your future is priced in and it's priced in heavily because no matter how much, no matter how desirable you are as a brand, if you, if there's doubt that you will achieve the future, they will price that risk in and they price it in heavily. They're going to go like, we'll buy you, but we're not paying much because I don't really think that you're going to be able to do what you're going to, what you say you're going to do. And, and that's it. So, and we, we, we missed the boat on our first acquisition talks, we went in with a, with, with a, with a hot brand. Like we went in with like the number one, like we were, we killed it. We, we scored like a hundred out of a hundred on our brand and we were like two out of a hundred on our audit. And, and they priced that risk in. And the very first offer we got was, was scarily low. And, and Mike and I, I mean, I remember the day and, and even more so they, they ended up walking away from the deal. Like we didn't even walk away. Like we, we didn't even get the pleasure of telling them, no, they, they eventually went like, listen, we actually changed our minds. Like it's, it's, it's bad. Right. And Mike and I were, we were both properly deflated by that. But the nice thing about being deflated is that, you know, being, de- being deflated turned into anger and, and anger is incredibly motivating and powerful force. And and we got angry and we got upset with ourselves that we that we hadn't that we hadn't seen that like it was ignorance it wasn't malicious we were just ignorant we didn't yeah. we didn't know you didn't know what you didn't know no no I mean you do know you know that you should have yeah. contracts with all your clients sure right? but you don't know what the price is for not because okay. we we had yeah. contracts with some clients and we had handshakes with others and we were already doing work for some that hadn't signed their contracts and. But when you're running an agency, there isn't a single agency owner listening to this that isn't going, yeah, yeah, like that's just how it works, right? If they're sending you POs but haven't signed the agreement, you're not going to say no. You're not going to not work. That client's leaning on you to pump out content or something. Like you're going to do it because you care about getting paid, not so much about what the legal agreement and whether it's actually got. So we had in the first year, we had auditors ask us for contracts. And I was like, sure, here's the contract. And they went, this is not even signed. And you're like, yeah, they never signed it. And you're like, what do you mean? I said, you wanted to see the contract. I'm showing it to you, but it's not signed. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, but we've been working with it for years. Like it's, and it just doesn't fly, right? It, it's okay if you're a private business. As the owners, you carry the risk of, of not having that like really foundational, solid base, business basics in place. You carry that risk personally. And most owners are, are happy. They're happy to float that risk because 
it's difficult. Getting that right is really hard work. You fight, you know, you going against the grain a lot. Getting a client to sign a contract before you start work, that's hard. Getting them to agree to like extended notice periods, penalty clauses, rate, automatic rate escalations, automatic renewals. It's it's a it's scary trying to force a client in there. Most agencies don't even want to, they don't even want to negotiate one thing with a client. They just want to start because they're so desperate to win. And that was us to a degree. Like, and then, but what happened is, is when we got to the point where we knew we wanted to sell, we realized that we couldn't get away with that any longer. And it became imperative to fix that side of the business. In the same talk, you also spoke about some of the complexities in that 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 we add in small to medium agencies in terms of our processes and 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 the running, which later on when you were with WPP, you realized that a much bigger agency has less complexities where where, where processes are concerned or the questions that they ask are concerned. How how can small to medium agencies simplify their processes in a way that bigger agencies do? And where at what point do you think we add some of these complexities having been through the journey on both sides? Okay, so there's there's a few things to talk about here, right? I want to separate I want I want to separate kind of process from um from agency view, like financial health view. Big agencies have complicated processes like all businesses have processes that run across the board and very few of them have it so simplified that it that it just runs like most businesses have some level of of complexity in their processes but what i realized is that is that wpp's view and how they measure your finances and your health and your performance is incredibly simplistic like it's it's they measuring the ratio between your your salary bill and your revenue. And that's pretty much it. Like if you're, and, and what, what your revenue projection is, they're like, okay, cool. Revenue projection. You show them, they're like, okay, good. And they go, what's the, what's and, and they, they're going to tell you, cause you would have submitted your financials, but they go, okay, cool. So your, you know, your salary bill in relation to your revenue is a little bit high. So you're not efficient. You're, and, and, and it's, that's it. That's the view. Like that's the view. That's your meeting with them. Right. And it's that this, that simplicity exists in small agencies and it exists in big agencies and it vanishes in small to medium agencies. Medium agencies tend to to overcomplicate and overanalyze. And it is a little bit of that imposter syndrome where you start going, well, we're a bigger agency, so it can't be that simple. Like we can't use simple metrics to measure success because we're at 30 people now. And you're like, no, it still works. You know, I mean, WPP owns 1,500 agencies or something crazy, probably more. They use the same measure for all their services agencies. They use the same measures of health and they're very simplistic, right? If you're out of whack, if you're out of shape, fixing it is complicated. But measuring it and having that view is simple. Like, it's like they take your temperature. Yeah, okay, good. Off you go. Go hit your target, like as long as as long as you're healthy, go hit, go hit your target. That's it. That simplistic view is unbelievably empowering, right? Um, but but don't get me wrong, the the actual processes, like the workflow, like delivery, etc., it's still fairly complicated. And as you get bigger, it, it does tend to get a little bit more complicated. 
to a degree until you, when you're big enough to throw money at the problem. And so a lot of these small to medium agencies, they struggle to like, they struggle with workflow, like, like producing work and getting it approved and getting it through the system and reverts and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's burdensome. Whereas when you're small and there's four or five of you, you all know what everyone's working on. It's pretty easy to get out. When there's 15 of you, no one knows what anyone else is working on and it's difficult to get stuff out. And when you're 30, you have a traffic manager who knows what everyone's working on and, and you get out. So, so growth and scale does mean you can hire more administrative and more operational staff to manage the processes. The processes then become easier to follow because they're managed, they have oversight, they have controls and enforcement. Um, but it doesn't mean that they vanish. It doesn't mean that the actual processes vanish. It means that they're easier to stick to. They're, they're better managed and better, better, better oversight. There are many conversations um, during the round at the moment. Um, and, and of course, agency folks are on different ends of the table. But basically, this is around the pitch process and pitches and how the pitch process uh, takes up some of your resources uh, for potential new business, which you know that you're supposed to enter into. And some, some people are opting out of this process and others are saying it's the way it should be. Firstly, where, where do you stand on it? And is the, does the pitch process work? So I've never worked client side, so you know I'm going to be biased on this. And as an agency coach, like I only ever want the best for my clients. And so that also makes me a little bit biased. But I think the pitch process itself is broken, not necessarily, not necessarily the concept of a pitch, right? Like having multiple agencies competing for a piece of work is fine, right? But I think the 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 scale of work that certain brands require agencies to deliver as part of a pitch process on risk, I think is criminal. Like I think it's I think it's a dis, dis, I think it's a disgrace and it's an absolute insult to the agencies that are pitching. I think the people in these agencies, their time is valuable. They're they're amazing people. They're incredibly smart. Smart. They're some of the hardest working people you'll ever meet. But in order to win your business, they have to deliver a year's worth of value upfront on risk to maybe get the client. Now. What that says immediately is it says that this client does not value your time and is not willing to pay for your time. So even if you win that pitch, that client's in there going, these guys already did a million rands worth of work for free. Like how much more can we get? So I think it just establishes an unhealthy relationship from the offset. It absolutely puts the client in this overwhelmingly dominant position and the agency is weakened because you're willing to work for free and you've been you you it's been proven that your that your work is not worth paying for but you have to do your absolute best work your absolute best work and it's not paid for and i think that and as i said i think it's like criminal i actually think it should be illegal like not to put too fine a point on it but i i think that i think brands are more than welcome to pit pit agencies against each other Right, but you should be able to go in and present credentials, past work, references, do a meet and greet, do a culture test, whatever it is. But if you, if as a brand, if you cannot make a decision on an agency 
with based on historical and readily available information, then that's on you. That's not on the agency, right? That, that's your inability to understand what it is that you need, what it is that you're looking for, right? If, if a brand had a far firmer grasp on what it is that they were looking for from an agency and what type of work, what type of agency and which agencies had best the best track records within those kind of specificities, they would be able to meet the couple, the handful of agencies who can deliver on that. They will go and meet with them and they do a culture fit and off you go, right? But a, a business like, like at Cerebra, we did social media for like Vodacom, Coca-Cola, APSA, Huawei. Like we'd done uh, past clients with Google, Samsung. Now we must go into a pitch to prove that we know what we're doing. Like, come on. Like, come on, I get it. We might not win. We might not be the most suitable agency to you, but there's nothing we can show you in a pitch that we haven't, we, we can't show you using historical work. Other work, mm. right? Mm. Past work, and, yeah. And so, and so again, so, so I, I, I'm all, all for making, positioning agencies against each other and, and evaluating them and looking at critical criteria and asking difficult questions. But, but telling an agency that they have to deliver X amount of pitch work in you know, in order to maybe get a chance at winning you, like no, and especially seeing as I know from firsthand experience that the vast majority of these pitches are decided before the pitch, right? Like people don't want to admit it. I'm not in an agency anymore, so I'm free, you know. But Cerebra, Mike, if Mike ever listens to this, like he'll have a giggle because we were actually pretty bad at pitches. We were really good at not pitching and winning clients. We weren't we weren't the best at, at pitching, right? Um, and I don't know why I think, you know, but, but the pitches that we won, we still had to work our, our butts off and we still had to put in the hours and, and do really well to win the pitch. But we already had an existing relationship with that client. Like we had a fair amount of certainty that the client really liked us. They really wanted us. And as long as we showed up well on the day that we would win it, if we, if we knew that we would win the pitch. But if we got invited out of the blue and it's like, hey, we'd like you to come and pitch, like you're not winning that because someone else already has already won it. They just need they need a donkey, need a few donkeys to go through the pitch process to make it look good. So what I would encourage agencies to do is to. I can't tell you to not pitch because it depends on where you are. And if you need it, then pitch like I'm not going to say don't pitch, just understand what it is that you're opting into. Um, and understanding the future problems you're creating. What I would encourage an agency to do, though, is to work out how many hours they think it's going to cost to do this pitch and, and create a real monetary value for that time. So, so if you had to sell that time to an existing client or if you had to find a new client and do, you know, if, if it's 250 hours that you've got to put in, right, and it's a 1,000 rand an hour, I'm just using that for easy maths, like, you're going to go, we're about to commit 250,000 rand in time and effort and energy into this pitch. And chances are that's going to be making our employees work overtime and weekends and nights, which means that the, the, if the client makes the agency work for free, the agency makes the employees work for free, which is also disgraceful, right? Because that's, you're not protecting your employees. But anyway, so if you turn around and go, guys, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be 250,000 rand of hours that we could sell for 250 grand um, or even a hundred grand if we just almost give them away or we can do it on risk 
I would compare that to what you believe the annual profit will be on that client. Okay. I can almost guarantee you that the pitch will be pretty close to a year's worth of profit on the client that's asking you to pitch. Yeah, if you do if you do the maths like that, then it starts it 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 starts making sense to opt in there with I suppose wise eyes wide open and and knowing exactly what the risk is from that. Knowing it'll take you a year. You could win that client. You could win the pitch. You get a one year contract, and it'll take that entire year's profit to pay for the work that you did in the pitch. Right. And not always, I'm generalizing. Obviously, if it's like a massive mega, mega millions, then 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 the risk, then you're priced in 250 grand on a pitch, but we could win 10 million rands worth of profit. Okay, fine. Like now you're priced in. Now you've got to you've got to weigh that up again, right? But you're still putting 250,000 Rand in for free on risk. And and but again, I I said I work with enough agency owners. The reason a lot of the guys still pitch is that if they say no to the pitch, they say no to the client. It's not like it's not like they get to go in a different way. And so I if I if I find the middle ground and the best advice I can give is follow your gut, look at how badly you need it or whatever it is. Don't overinvest in it, but but don't give it to them. Like fight. If a client asks you to pitch, you go, okay, cool. Listen, here's what I'm suggesting. Let's come in and do a credentials display. We'll show you our references. You can go and you can, these are the names of the marketing directors of the clients we work with. They've all agreed to go for lunch with you to talk about our agency. They can, they can vouch firsthand what we like to work with, et cetera. This is what I'm willing to do to prove that we're the correct agency for you. If that's not enough, I'd like to know what you want above that. Then they come and go, well, we want you to pitch a creative campaign on brand, et cetera, et cetera. And then you send them a quote. And you go, we're happy to quote you to, to do this concept as a pitch. This is the quote. If we win the pitch, then we will tear up that quote. Like we will write it off as, as sunk costs. If we lose the pitch, you pay it. But if you pay it, you get to use the ideas and the creative with the other agency that you want. Like that's a fair trade, you know. But the work for free thing is not, is, is not okay. And and I don't really want to shame any of the brands out there. Um, you know, they're not e- they're not evil monsters. They're simply participants in an evil system. <laughs> That's a bit mean, but th- that like it's kind of like oh, this is how it's always been. And you know, the brand manager is being told by the CMO go out to pitch, and. And so they do, and they don't, they don't necessarily know they know better, and they perpetuate that cycle of agencies being really weak in the relationship, and being bulldozed and run over by clients, and that, that impacts their bottom line. They can't make money, and then and that, that creates the trap. If a client's not willing to allow you to make money, then you're never going to be you're never going to get control of your time back. You're never going to be able to hire good people and delegate. You're not going to be able to grow beyond your own capacity. And it's bad. Listen, I'm gonna like I'm not gonna name names, but a, a client of mine sent me this pitch document that they received the other day, invitation to pitch. And one of the requirements in their initial submission was they had to disclose their profit margins on rates. Right. 
So you now have to disclose the client. The client is forcing you to say, this is how much money we make on each person's time and on each hour that we sell you. This is how much money we make. And the reason they're doing that is they will then sanction that. They will then moderate. They'll go, nope, sorry, you're making too much money on this hour and they will adjust your rate for you. No. We, you're allowed to charge us 250 Rand for this person, not 300, right? Client, and listen, I've, one of our biggest, I'm not, not, not going to go on record with Nate. So one of our biggest clients did that, had that with us. We had to submit every person on the team what their rate was and their qualifications from school to university to everything. And the client came back and said, based on this person's skills, their qualifications, their experience, et cetera, the most we will ever pay this person is like 450. Meanwhile, our rate was 550. They're going to know we'll only pay 450 for, this per, for, for the hours that this person does. Now, so you now got a client telling you, so you listen, do me a favor, go into a restaurant and just tell them what, ask them, how much money do you make on this steak? And then go, no, 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 no. I'm not going to allow oh, you I won't to pay that. <laughs> 100% markup on, on the stake. At most, I will allow you to make as a 30% markup. Like, who, who do you think you are? But that, that is pervasive. Mongezi, you'll, yeah. you'll be blown away, yeah. right? But there's someone at a client who doesn't understand why that's not okay. If you're enjoying The Lead Creative, please share this episode with your network and hit follow or subscribe. Enjoy the show. While sticking with this agency-client relationship, there's, um, there's a lot of talk around the responsibility of the agency to create great work. I want to turn this around a bit um, and ask you, what in your view is the responsibility of, of brands to, to help agencies or and to enable agencies to create some of this great work? First and foremost, it's, it's to be consistent with your, the requirement that you have made from the agency. So if you appoint an agency because you want them to be disruptive in the market, then you have to be prepared for disruptive work coming back. Like they're going to, you know, if you're a challenger brand, they're going to come back with some ideas that are going to push you, that are going to test you. And then you can't then turn around and go, no, be safe. Because the brief was to be brave. Okay. And if, if the brief is to be safe, then don't get upset that it's boring. Okay. So yeah. I think, I think and, and most creative agencies will attest to this. You know, the client hires people who they believe will do amazing work. And then they put, then all they do is they restrict it. Now, certain clients, it's not restricting, it's tightening. Right, so they tighten the idea and they make it better and better. Certain clients think they're doing that, but they're actually killing and constraining the idea, right? And 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 they're vastly different. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, if you want great work, pay for it. Okay, it's something you and I actually mentioned when we had a catch up the other day around yeah. brands are their wor own worst enemies because if you want great work, you have to be willing to pay a premium for that great work because if you if you don't pay your agency a premium, that agency can't hire good people and get amazing work. So the moment you put pressure on your agency's rates, you're forcing that agency yeah. to hire cheap people. Cheap people very rarely do amazing work. They do cheap work. Cheap work gets criticized, creates 400 reverts, 
and eventually gets abandoned. And then the agency gets fired and gets criticized for, oh, you weren't able to deliver on the brief. And you go, but you never paid us for the brief. The brief was be yes. amazing, be brilliant, be everything. And then the budget was like, like 3,000 grand. Yeah. Okay. So now what's happened in South Africa, post COVID, everything like, like work from home, remote work, et cetera, has become a genuinely real thing. The first wave of threats to agencies, and when everyone said, oh, the agency model is dead, right? Like, you know, pre-COVID, everyone was like, oh, the agency model is dead because everyone was going freelance, right? And so the, the typical thing is your talent rises through, your, through an agency and it gets a specifically creative talent, like people who are producing amazing work. Once they get to a certain point, they realize that they can make more money and have more freedom if they go freelance, and so then they go, they go into the freelance world. So agencies were all, most agencies were losing some, their top a percentage, high percentage of their top talent into freelancers. And then they could contract them back if they wanted to, but it was at a higher rate. Now what's happened is South Africa is now firmly a global resource. South African skills, living in South Africa, are being exported en masse because we're cheap compared to global standards. So U.S. agencies, European agencies, Asian, Pacific East Asian agencies are hiring South African skills, and, so, and but the cream of the crop. They're coming yeah. in literally going, the best of everything is half the price to what our local markets are. And so the top South African talent are staying in South Africa. Well, a lot of them are leaving. We know that. But a lot of the guys are staying, but they're not accepting work from SA agencies anymore. They're not accepting SA work because it can't match international rates. And so now the SA agencies, they lost all their top people to freelance. Those people now freelancing to international clients. So SA agencies have been priced out of the market. They can't afford good SA skills because good SA skills are, are selling for triple rates to the US, right? Yeah, yeah. And so they can only pick from immediate, the, the, the next level down and no criticism to these people, please. But like they're picking from the B team and they're fighting for it, which means the B team is getting expensive because there's not enough supply, there's high demand. And so the price goes up. And a lot of my clients are like, a mid-level account manager wants 80 grand. <laughs> and you're like, well, they'll probably get it because there's, there's not enough of them type of thing. And so mediocre talent is now, getting expensive and it's and a lot of it is because and then the clients and the brands are sitting there going nah no no sorry we'll we only pay for this yeah. an hour so the person's yeah. in there going lit, like literally i have to get someone out of university who's never worked a day in their life and and has no work experience they're, they're smart but they have no work experience i have to get them to do this because that's the only person who allows me this only way i can make a markup on what you're paying us and so the work it's it's harder for brands to get good work out of SA agencies because they just they don't have access to that talent, which is the very thing, very first thing you and I spoke about. This market, yes. the market forces. Yes. There's a there's a there's a a, a, um, a kind of a, a a bit of a black hole with talent at the moment, especially at the at the at the top level. In closing, Craig, um, just coming back to this uh, f future of the agency or future agency model that you spoke about, there are quite a number of consulting firms acquiring agencies and 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 getting agency talent into uh, some of these consulting companies. 
one of the many things that comes out of that is that some of these agencies end up with really great data that the consulting firms then get and are able to action some of that insights towards campaigns, towards the work that they do. How do you think this then affects or creates what the future agency model might look like? I think en- enough time has passed. You remember that the agency space, we always think that we're moving quickly, but when you look over a long enough history, we don't move at all, right? Because it's always flashing new things. It's always like, oh, it's social media. And then it's digital. Oh, it's paid media. It's like this and this and this. So it feels like it's moving quickly. Oh, data, big data, small data. Like it feels like it's moving quickly. But when you look back at the work, like it's, it's, it's like the same kind of work. In fact, there's, mm. there's, you know, like someone like Dean Olshug would argue that the creative work's getting worse, like data, like it's potentially getting worse, right? Yes. Um, I think, I think like sales, sales lead gen marketing is probably getting better with all the tools, but the creative stuff is getting worse. I don't see it as being a massive disruptor and I don't see it as being a massive differentiator for the, for the agencies per se. I, I think it's a great crossover of skills I think it's a great way for consulting firms to not leave that money on the table. I think it's a great way for agencies to get access to consulting firm clients. So it it makes sense and it makes sense as to why they did it. But I think enough time has passed to prove that the model didn't sweep the market. It didn't clean out independent agencies. If, you know, like the, the top independent agencies are still doing great work. They're still thriving. They're still winning new clients and, and you know, et cetera. They're still attracting talent. If it was a game changer, it would have changed the game. I think it's smart. I think it's a good way to do it. I don't necessarily think it's a game changer. I think we would have seen the game would have changed if it was. Um, but again, it's, it, it, it's, it's smart business for both you know, both the consulting firms and the agency. I think it makes sense. It's it's great. But as I said, I don't I don't think it puts them in a position that they're gonna go and clean up. Um I just I think it puts them in a good position, but it's it's not a guarantee that's not a guaranteed win. They've they've still got to go in and win clients. So they've still got to prove that 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 it works. And and I and the if it was like a Venn diagram where the crossover of the agency and the the consulting firm, that little piece of crossover value, I don't think is necessarily big enough to completely sway all the clients. Like the agency still has to stand on its own as a phenomenal agency, you know, and the consulting firm still has to stand on its own as providing phenomenal insights and phenomenal data, et cetera. Um, as a combination, I don't, I think it's fine, but I don't, I don't think it's that big of a game changer. Thank you so much, Craig. I think yeah, there's a there's a lot in that. From I think from talent management to how brands should handle their relationships with agencies, as well as this last point that you're making now. That I think I mean there isn't we're not seeing a lot that looks to be changing the game as much when we look back to how much the work has actually changed over a long period. In terms of uh, the agencies that you're seeing, especially the smaller ones that you are seeing, what what would you, what would your one sort of idea or piece of advice be for the ones that have the potential to grow but don't know that they do or don't realize what that potential is? 
So, so it's it's a challenge I give to all my clients from small to medium business, small to medium agencies when I, when I start coaching with them, is I ask them a simple question. I said, if your only responsibility, like literally the only thing that you had to do for, within this business, is new business generation, how fast could you double the revenue that you have? Right. If you only had to sell, that was it. You didn't have to do any other work. Like you literally handed that brief over to someone and the work was delivered without you being involved. It was brilliant. It was amazing work. All you had to do was generate leads, go out and pitch and win and win business, right? Um, most small to medium agency owners will tell me that they can double their revenue in six months if they didn't have to do the work. So my advice is do everything that you humanly can to get yourself into a position where the only thing you have to do is revenue. Because if you can double your revenue in six months, everything else that you're busy doing is preventing you from doubling your revenue. Not saying it's not important. I'm saying potentially it's not critical and there's an opportunity for someone else to do it. There's an opportunity to delegate it or to hire or to build something that automates it or whatever it is. But Doing work and and sitting involved in projects is 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 the thing that's that's holding you back from growth. If if growth is the number one thing that you want, it's holding you back from growth. If growth is in partnership with great work, then then stay in the work and and if that gives you joy and happiness, I'm I'm not I don't want to make everyone a sales drone. I'm just saying like, if growth is your number one thing, then growth must be your number one thing. What do they say in writing? you've done enough writing. The main thing is to make the main thing the main thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, like if revenue growth is the main thing, then the main thing is to make revenue growth the main thing. Like it must be your thing. It must be your everything. I hope our agency owners are listening and they will take up that challenge. Thank you very much, Craig, for your time. That was awesome. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Man. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm loving the show. Thank you for listening to The Lead Creative. Did you get one insight that's worth sharing from this episode? Please share it with your network or your friends. Pop me some of your ideas and innovative finds on Twitter, on at Mongesi. This podcast is available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find me on mongesi.com.